Welcome to the Yogi's Roadmap, a podcast featuring Bhavani Sylvia Maki, an international yoga teacher, musician, and author of the Yogi's Roadmap, the Patanjali Yoga Sutra as a Journey to Self-Realization. I'm Shanae Trudeau, a student of Bhavani and a teacher of yoga. These are conversations from the heart. The Yogi's Roadmap podcast explores yoga as a journey of compressed evolution off the beaten path toward breakthrough experiences. Bhavani believes that engaging in the full science and art of yoga uplifts us, deepens our connection with authentic self and to the source of joy within for personal growth and deep transformation. Bhavani Sylvia Maki has been studying the art and science of yoga for nearly 40 years. In her teaching, she interweaves the insights she has gathered into a holistic exploration of the microcosmic and macrocosmic self. Dedicated to exploring yoga in its complete expression, her teachings are steeped in the traditions of Patanjali's classical eight-limbed yoga, with an emphasis on integrity of alignment and the use of yoga as a powerful tool for healing. This project was conceived out of the desire to have more, deeper, intimate conversations with my teacher, and a request from one of Bhavani's own teachers, Rama Joyti Vernon, who once said to her, let's get you out of the jungle and into the world. Bhavani lives on the island of Kauai, Hawaii, with her husband, Ray, and their son, Nico. Welcome to the Yogi's Roadmap podcast, off the beaten path toward breakthrough experiences. Welcome back to episode 14 of the Yogi's Roadmap podcast. My name is Shanae Trudeau, and I get the opportunity and the privilege to sit with my teacher and my mentor, Bhavani Sylvia Maki. So thank you for being here. Thank you, and thank you for pronouncing Sylvia so nicely. <laughs> I really appreciate that. <laughs> oh, but of course I try. We have you and I unusual names, so... Yes. <laughs> So just a quick reminder to our listeners that it really does mean the world to podcasters when you go and leave a five-star review and write something nice. Uh, It means so much to us and it really helps the podcast get out into the world. So thank you again. Okay. Do you want me to ask my first question? No. All right, we're gonna skip the no, first. No, you question. can ask it. I'm just joking. It's good, good. Just in the same way that I prompt you, you can prompt me. So, my first question is: How's your second book coming along? Yes, well, it's coming along, and uh, <clears throat> you know, it's um, because through the mentorship, I'm learning so much and growing so much, it's really challenging because there's pertinent things that I want to, the body of work is becoming more and more um, profound. And then of course there's life experience. So that's like the challenge. It's like, how do you funnel this information 
into something. You know, originally when I, I started writing it, Nico was like two or three. Embarrassed to say that was like seven years ago. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to write a short little paragraph, very kind of topical, very practical kind of worldly information. And, you know, that happened quickly. And then as I went back, it was like, you know, it was really hard not to touch into the deeper layers. So I've written that book, actually, probably five or six times already. But I keep um, reviewing it and editing it. And now as I'm saying that, I realize, well, that's what happens with the sutra. You're meant to revisit them over and over again. But it's it's coming along. It's a deep practice. Um, there's times where I create for myself, you know, oh, I want to finish it, you know, this year. And then I realize that that just creates unnecessary anxiety. And I'm not writing from a place of chitta vritti nirodha. So at this point, um, I'm less focused on producing a product and more interested in the process. So it is coming. And of course, there's all of the, they're not really interruptions, but I'll have a teacher training, um, you know, or travel or general classes or workshops. Um, you know, there's so many things going on that getting into the space, you know, creating the space to do it. And then when I do do it, it's like, it's just a full on um, immersion. So I'll spend, you know, six, seven hours a day on it for many days at a time. So it's um, it's really the deepest practice for me is that writing and how can I communicate the heart stream in a way <clears throat> that is clear, but also touches people from the inside out. So yeah, it's coming along and God, God, God only knows when it'll be done. Um, I also realized that it's two books because when I first thought I was going to do it, it was going to be the first and second padas. And now because it's become more um, deeper in its scope, it's clear that it needs to be two books. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much. Um for me, what sparked that question is that reading your first book, it took me five years. <laughs> and I'm reminded of um, Clarissa Pincola Estes' book, Women Who Run With the Wolves. She said it took her 20 years to write it. And so it should be savored. And I feel the same way about your first book is that that it's not to be read for me personally, cover to cover quickly, <laughs> that it's meant to be taken as I can only assume you wrote it in in small doses, you know, very, very poignant, very important teachings and stories in there. So I'm excited when book two and three come out. <laughs> I honor the process. <laughs> for well, sure. you're getting the juice in the mentorship, I have to say. Yeah. And so, you know, the mentorship was going. And then I had my writings and it was like, oh my God, I need to merge these two even more, which requires me to then, yeah, it, it, it's profound. There's there's a lot there. I could spend lifetimes in this process and, and savoring it. It's not even that it's work, you know, but it's just such an incredible penetrating experience. And then of course, 
you can't just be unpacking a sutra and exploring it without it percolating <clears throat> that stuff coming up in your life. So it's always like, oh my God, yeah, this is this is what I have to look at. And here it is. So you're sitting with that. And it's very humbling. It's a very humbling practice. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm so amazed at people like our friend Mariana Kaplan, who's just puts out a book, you know, so quickly in the stream. And I go, what's wrong with me? You know, but it's, it's just, it's just different. It's just different. Yeah. 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 Well, well, it's exciting. And so talk to me about love and devotion and surrender. So often in, on the path of yoga, there's this element of, um, like work, work with a capital W, which is important also. And I know for myself that when working with you, since working with these teachings and being in your trainings, that it is work and that I also get this element of softness. And so these words, love, devotion, and surrender, as they arise in the tradition of yoga, and even more specifically in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we could do a, you know, a a session on each of those. And it's interesting to look at the interface between them. So let's start with faith. Let's start with faith or, um, you know, more specifically, the word that Patanjali uses in the 20th Sutra, and he, he lists it first. So this is called hagiography, where there's a reason, you know, it's almost like when you're looking at the ingredients on a label, whatever, whatever constituent is listed there first is the one that's in the greatest amount and concentration. So it has priority. Um, so. The first one that he lists is Shraddha. And it's difficult, as we've talked about before, because we don't have nomenclature that really accurately describes the, <clears throat> the feeling, the, the sentiment, the intention behind the words. So we, we have to be careful. We don't get stuck in the words, but we listen to the heart stream. So da, we know from dhyana, from dharma, from svadhyaya, and da means to put together with and to hold. So it's like the container. And shrad is to reassure ourselves with the truth. And we've spoken about how truth is not a static um, axiom. It's not a sweeping platitude but that it has movement within it. So understanding that we're seeing pieces and parts of the truth, we're getting glimpses, but we're never really seeing the whole truth and loving the fact that there's so much mystery behind it. And so let's touch upon Ishwara Pranidhana, um, which is that sense of, you know, surrender doesn't really do it just or justice either, because it's not like, you know, when we think of the word surrender, it's usually defeat or collapse or caving in. 
but this is almost like a, a, a sense of being, of dissolving in the wonder and the magic. And so in our Western culture, we don't really hold that much space for magic. And in, you know, in yoga, it really is magic. It's like just the wonder of it all that we could have these incredible teachings, which were transmitted in this language that is a, an angelic, a language of light, a language of vibration and samskrita is so wonderful. So it's like, instead of, you know, one of our biggest problems is that we think we have to be good at everything. And, you know, this is something that came up in the Sutra Mentorship, like rejoice that you suck at things as well, you know, and, and fail gloriously. And that sense of humility and that sense of playfulness, um, we don't have to be the best at everything. That that's not the solution either, because that just creates more hierarchy. And we can see where that's that's just an insidious tendency that keeps eating us from the inside out, right? So to, to realize that, like, oh my gosh, I'm seeing little glimpses of the truth. And there's so much that I don't see. So Shraddha is um it's the heartfelt commitment that we're curious and we don't have to be good at everything. We don't have to know everything. And in that choice, you know, we, we realize that we can be learners and love is really the action of willing, being willing to learn about others and about yourself. And then even the larger, the larger context. So it's not so much about sublimating the ego or conquering the ego, but realizing that the ego has a, a, a greater function in life. So Shraddha is, you know, our devotion to that. It's the sense of like, okay, I have my needs, you know, and we're in such a, um, in such an individualistic kind of a culture particularly in the United States and the West, how can I make my mark? And Sarah, who shared at the end of the mentorship yesterday, said something beautiful. She was like, I realize now, or no, maybe it was, well, Sarah and Andy, they're both artists. <clears throat> it's more about being part of life's beauty making. And so Ishvara Pranidana is where we feel ourselves as being part of a larger creativity. And when some great piece of work, like, you know, I mean, I feel really good about my first book, The Yogi's Roadmap. I pick it up and I'm like, oh my God, who wrote this? Like it was, it was so much bigger than me. There was an alignment. There was a desire within me. There was a desire from my students. Give us something we can hold on to. Like, this is so rich. How can I, how can I tune into this? And so it's like the students asked for it. Um, that really pulled me in a lot of ways. And then somehow with just putting myself in the fire of the practice, because writing, you know, I can write, but is it coherent? You know, I write like I speak. How can I organize things in a way where it's um, 
you know, it, it, it can be assimilated, right? So there was, you know, my efforts, there was this bigger desire and there was this alignment, you know, something happened and all of the, all of the wisdom that has come my way through all the Mahatmas, the great beings that I've been around. A lot of what came through that book was also insights from students, you know, and really Shraddha is that sense of, I'm a student. I'm here to learn. I'm here to grow in love. And it sounds real good, but where's the effort behind it, you know? And that's where, you know, having practice, even the word practice almost seems flat and um, kind of like pedestrian. It's more of puja. It's more the ritual of getting out of our inertia and offering ourselves into something bigger. So it, it it's really, it's like we do that to clear out from yesterday's sutra, um, sutra 215, I think, the virodhat, which is the constant stream of contradiction that happens within us. And it's not something wrong. It's like, it's what Patanjali calls parinama, the compressive force of evolution. So we have all that going on. And, you know, we go to practice and we'll probably bring some of that into practice, but if it's a really functional practice where we're connecting to breath, um, you know, as soon as we connect to breath, we're connecting into a larger stream of something. So it's a way of connecting to life with a sense of purpose. And one thing that Patanjali says, you know, very, very repeatedly, it's, it's like threaded through the sutras is if you're casual about it, it's not really going to be a deep romance, right? So that investment in ourselves um, and our investing of ourselves with consistency, with conviction, um, that we're there to, oh, this is interesting because practice isn't something that builds up. It's seeing what you can throw away. I would say it's even seeing what you can offer up. Can I offer this up like my own sense of inadequacy or the um, <clears throat> the dukkha samskara vritti virodascha in Sutra 215, which is that life is continuously frustrating. I want to do good, but there's all these all these um, wrenches that seem to be thrown in the mechanism of my own design. So we're kind of offering that up. And in doing that, we connect to a greater reality. It's that rotation of our egocentricity. And we realize like, okay, there's, there's something bigger going on. There, there's, there's something more creative than what I can even see. And that's the practice of um, being a renunciate. And we see, okay, there's a greater good that I am not seeing. And I've just got to let go into that. So really, um, 
you know, I, I we need to really reevaluate the words that we use and what they mean for us. Because Patanjali says, as long as we have contingencies around ideas like love, we're going to experience distress. Now we have to hold this into context. Okay. This doesn't mean that you would permit yourself to be in a, a relationship in which there's mutual disrespect or even disrespect from one side, or there's an abuse of one another's good graces. We have to use common sense. Um, but yeah, to really get clear in what we're devoted to. And when we get clear in that, then things start to fall into place and we don't know how it's going to happen, but that that commitment and that devotion, and it's not all on you. All you need to do is be in the integrity of that intention and show up the best that you can, you know, offer wholeheartedly with skill. And sometimes the offering is to not act. <laughs> sometimes the offering is to just be quiet and to hold space for another and then to let it go. Wow, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm hesitant to shift gears because there was a few things that you touched on. Sure. And um, I'd love to just, if you have more to say on this word practice, because, um, and the element of offering it up, because what comes to mind is as a very new um, um person to yoga there, I needed something to do. And maybe that was because of my age. I came to it very young. And so it was like learning all the things and getting all the things. And maybe over time, there was this sense of offering it up. However, <laughs> it could also have started, you know, at the very beginning of reframing what we mean by, you know, the word practice, the word faith, the word surrender. And I'm just yeah, I'd love if there's any more you want to say about that. About, can you reframe it a little bit more for me? Yeah. So practice as less of um, gaining things or um, acquiring, or even this sense of like having to do something, but more of this sense of what can I give? So you said that the practice is more of as, as a puja, as an offering of ourselves rather than this effort and this will to do or make something happen. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, I, I feel like Sutra 120 really speaks to that. Samati Pragna So, you know, Virya is the energy that we put into it. We spoke about Shraddha being that devotion, that commitment. And, you know, there's a there's a strong commitment phobia these days. 
but making that commitment to ourselves. Um, and love is what we invest our time into. <clears throat> and so Smriti, it's like we we come to yoga, it's not only offering ourselves into this greater creativity in which we can kind of unburden ourselves from the anxieties that accrue. You, you really you really can't get a strong foothold in this world. It's like there's just it's it's like as soon as you make some money, some huge bill comes or something breaks or, you know, it's like there's really no security in the world. So, you know, how do we how do we let go of all those anxieties and all those insecurities in the world? And we can use so the way that Patanjali speaks about practice also is it's cathartic. It's like I, I don't have control over that. Let me let it go. And even the sense of, um, you know, there's focus and there's direction within the practice so that we're not hemorrhaging energy everywhere. But there's a letting, but there's a wonderful thing because the focus, rather than it being one of restriction, it's one of remembrance. And as soon as we come into our breath, this is where we're able to remember our own purity, our own clarity, our own innocence. Um, so, you know, it, it is in giving that we receive. And, you know, by coming to yoga, it's, it's really a way of reclaiming our wholeness and being able then to come into the world with that sense of wholeness and knowing that there's going to be disappointments, there's going to be um, frustrations, there's going to be distractions, but it's a way of coming back into that centered place. So yeah, it takes effort to show up because sometimes we just want to, you know, frenetically try to check things off the list. There's a huge to-do list, but when we don't have that place of center, we don't have peace. And without peace, what do we have in life? So interestingly enough, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to um, express this in a way which is not making the unrest bad or the frustration bad or the fact that you have urges or ambitions bad, but to see it as all part of the evolutionary process. So I, you know, I would say I can't, I can't think of a single time in my life where I've come out of practice and not had sense of a greater context and a greater reality. And it's humbling in the most beautiful way like humbling when you're walking in a beautiful place in nature and you remember that you're part of this. And then you go, oh my God, my world had become so constrictive in, in you know, the little room that I was living in or the world that I was living in. And I am part of this greater place. So I think Mr. Iyengar said that, you know, initially it takes tremendous effort to practice. 
you know, it's like, oh, I got to lift my kneecap. I got to do this. I got to show up. I got to, you know, all of these things. And then eventually what happens is that it doesn't, um, it doesn't require so much effort. It actually cultivates joy. You feel joy in the experience. And it takes a lot of, you know, part of Shraddha, part of being, you know, really developing like um, committed love. You know, I have to say that we're, we're at 29 years in my marriage. I feel like we're just figuring it out, Shanae. So Shraddha, like stay... <laughs> stay with it. Most relationships don't last that long, you know, or they last a long time, but they're really unhappy. But you know, if you really, if you really work it, and of course, it's like yoga to the max, as we say in Hawaii, because you just got it's humbling and you know, and looking at the larger context of the relationship, not just your needs, not just their needs, not this, um, this dyad, but feeling that, okay, this is where that love is growing us. And somebody who's committed, you know, which, which was more my husband, I was the person with the foot out the door most of the time, what can I say, you know, it's embarrassing, but like his level of commitment, I would say I'm more of a grower, though, at the same time, <laughs> where, um, you know, you're, you're, you're finally, coalescing and it took so much energy and so much effort and so many times you think like this is it I'm out it's over and you're not because you're still growing and learning in in that process so what um it's so beautiful to see and to be a part of that seed you know, like what brought me here? And that's a question. That's a question that we're going to keep, you know, asking and revisiting. We thought we thought we came to yoga because we were young and we were bored or because we had back pain or because our friend brought us or whatever. And it's that question that we're never really going to know. It's like, we're seeing a little piece of it again. Um, and I feel like the more that we you know, develop our capacity for, for transmission in our body, for listening to our bodies, to listening to the wisdom that's encoded everywhere. We just start to see like this larger design and it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing. I knew there was more you wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> You're so good at pulling it out. <laughs> oh, it's just, it's so great, that clarity. So, um, so yeah, so what would you say to, you know, the, the student that's like, I can't come, I didn't <laughs> sleep last night. You know, there's a reality to all of these things, or I can't come, I tweaked my back. Like there's a time to stay home and rest. And then there's a time to like make efforts toward putting ourselves back together again. Do you have thoughts about that? Yes. I mean, of course you and I are on fire. Our hair's on fire. So there's a part of us that, you know, wants to say, listen, this is actually the time, you know, if, if we only came to yoga when we were feeling a hundred percent, we would never do yoga and we probably wouldn't need it. Okay. You know, so there's that aspect and it, it's challenging because there's also, 
when is this, you know, the student's process? So we want to offer encouragement without them, like without feeling like we're soliciting them for yoga. And that's, that's a tricky thing, but I would say, um, you know, my approach is softened. However, if I'm offering a training, I, you know, it's like, Hey, you need to be here. And even if you can't do it, just sit and watch, just be in the space. And invariably those people say, I learned so much just by watching. I learned so much just by being there. So there's not really a clear answer. And maybe, you know, the best, maybe a good way to say it is, oh, I, I understand, you know, I like, I, I remember that too. And that, when that happens to me, it's a tricky thing. And the right answer for that person might not necessarily be that they come to class, um, you know, but you can share in your experience, like, you know, I found that I wasn't getting rest. I wasn't able to sleep. And by, you know, doing the yoga, it helped me to calm my nervous system or even say to that person, hey, if that's going on, have you thought about doing yoga when you can't sleep? Like do a little lay down with your legs up the wall or, um, you know, do a little bit of, um, you know, um, a little bit of pranayama breathing practice, nothing that's going to excite the nervous system. So it is challenging and you're probably not going to do it the right way. <laughs> so you just don't know. That's that kind of part of Shraddha, but you can speak from your own heart and, um, you know, you just have to kind of tune into it. Everybody has their own ripening process. It's challenging. And of course we want them in there because we, we know how good it is, you know, it's good for everybody and it, it feeds the soul, but yeah, it's really, it, it's really, um, kind of a, a curious thing because I'm like, well, why wouldn't you want to be here? You know, but people, they have their own lives. They have their own priorities. They have their own, who can really say? Yeah. 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 Thank you. That's very useful. So who are you studying currently? What are you reading? And <laughs> what is your, what is your um, theme or scope currently in your teaching? Is there someone or something that's, that's, uh, yeah, driving you? You know, um, well, clearly the backbone of what I'm teaching comes from the Yoga Sutra because that's where the, the experience is so rich. It's so uh, applicable in the day-to-day -day life. It, um, it, it authenticates the practice and the practice authenticates the sutras. And then it helps you to like experience the nature of life itself is realized through the acts of life. And then yoga definitely like directly affects my acts of life. So right now, what am I reading? Oh, that's a great question. 
Ray, Nico, and I are reading the Ramayana. And I bought a children's book. Um, you know, I tell Nico because I bought him a tip and like 10 years before he was born when I was in India. Oh, this will be the perfect little lunchbox. Or, you know, and I bought all these wonderful Indian uh, Hindu comic books. So the stories of Ganesha and Hanuman and Shiva and Durga. And uh, we picked up the, the Ramayana and we take turns reading it. And we make a little space for Lord Hanuman because Hanuman always comes and sits and listens. He wants, not because he wants to hear about himself, but because he wants to hear about Rama. And we light a candle and that's our evening practice. And it's really, I mean, it's like so beautiful to have that experience and have, and it, it's a really good adventure. I mean, it could be out of Marvel comics, you know? So that's what we're reading for fun. <laughs> I don't really read, um, fiction very much. I love it. I love historical fiction. That's my treat when I go, when I take my vacation and, you know, when I go to Greece in the summer, I read things like that and I, and I love it. But otherwise for me, reading is more about, um, study development. So I am reading one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20, 23 translations of the Yoga Sutras. I love the journal, um, the psychology today. There's, there's, there's usually some nuggets that are in there. I read, um, I look at a lot of Joseph Campbell. I feel like that because of the motifs that are repeating are so, um, they're so juicy and there's so much like, like so many layers of flavor and they're, they're, they, they speak to our indigenous soul, you know? So I'll read that. I love Martine Prechtel's writings. I'll open books up on that. I read a bit of Jungian psychology. Um, you know, so that's, that's kind of what I'm pulling on and that's what I'm studying and I'm learning. And then it, for me about, you know, doing practice, because I can do less and less fancy poses and I have less desire to do these extreme poses. Um, what's really interesting for me is all of these creative ways of working with the root postures and really almost like deconstructing them. And then when I deconstruct them, to marry the practices of pranayama and breath and feeling myself. And of course, you know, Ida Rolf's work, that's really fascinating to me. So working in a way that is much more on a, a foshic level, which is like the chitta of our bodies um, and, and using chairs and bricks and belts and ropes and blankets and bolsters in really creative ways. That's what excites me. So Rama, you know, would, would say, and I don't know where she pulled it from, but that there's 84 root poses and a hundred thousand variations of each. I think I'm, you know, just starting to explore all of these variations. It's, it's, it's really fun for me. Oh, that's so wonderful. 
So that goes right into my next question is like, like, tell me more about how do you use the study and the practice of yoga to enrich your life now? So going into the nuance and exploring, I love that the root, the root of the root of the root. <laughs> wow. I don't know how not to use yoga um, to enrich my life um, because you know, I feel like, um, you know, I'm developing what we're experiencing, you know, for those of us who are really like devoted to gathering, I hope, you know, I imagine you're experiencing this too in our breakthrough rooms and coming together is this sense of compassion for our humanity and our compassion for and our and our our sense of patience with ourselves and just understanding it's really transpersonal psychology so you're understanding the nature of your humanness your emotions your desires your frailties your um your shortcomings your gifts and then, you know, we have like yoga practice or yoga experience or even, you know, which is a shamanic practice and, and truly, and also shamanic practices, you know, when we're taking maybe, um, you know, medicinal plants, the Ashaudi, and, you know, we have these peak experiences within our lives, which we can, which is so great in yoga, because you can cultivate that on your own, you know, you can stand on your head and oh my God, you're in a totally psychedelic place, right? We feel that. So with transpersonal psychology, it's understanding our humanness, understanding the fact that it's not just about those peak experiences, but like, how are we going to be functioning human beings in life? And not use these um, high realizations to shrink our sense of self. So how can we, how can we take this incredible ideology, philosophy, and marry it with our psychology? Um, you know, so that's that that's it's, it's a constant thing and, and it's super humbling all the time right now. My biggest challenge is, um, you know, Nico, my son, I've been teaching him piano and he is really, he just says he wants to burn the piano. He wants to hate the, he hates the piano. Yesterday he said, he's going to finish high school in one year, by the way, he's in fourth grade just so that he doesn't have to play piano anymore and he can get in a car and drive on the road and drive away, you know, and I'm just like, Oh, you know, and uh, how I can help him to learn because for, it's not about the piano, but what I really see it is, it's about learning focus and learning how to polish something that stick to itness. And it's a very complex instrument. I mean, he's playing, a, he's doing a lot. You've got all of these, you know, notes that are happening, syncopation, dynamics, articulation. There's all of these things are going on. He's dyslexic. 
reading the notes is challenging and, you know, getting him, like helping him to face the challenge and see that he can do it without me turning into my father. (laughs) (laughs) Who was such a perfectionist. I mean, uh, I wanted to learn Italian. He was a linguist. And I remember sitting down with him and it was really, uh, you know, I came to him and I said, will you teach me Italian? It was a big deal because he was a scary guy and, and he was, um, you know, he was, he, he, he physically assaulted me, you know, as a kid. So it was like, really, you know, at that point was over, but he was very threatening and he was also very erudite. So I felt very intimidated and I sat down with him at the table and we started learning Italian And we literally spent 30 minutes on me trying to pronounce one word correctly. Yosano, 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 Yosano. And I couldn't do it to his satisfaction. And I felt so frustrated and I felt so um, like unworthy and stupid. And so that's really the challenge that I'm dealing with Nico is, you know, how can I relay this information to him without him feeling stupid, without me being impatient? And that's my big practice right now. So then there's like, oh my God, we just took the lid off so much right there. And how can I not feel like I'm a horrible human being? And even when I did my practice this morning, like I was shaking in Shirshasana. And I thought, don't try to stop shaking, just shake. And I was perspiring. And, you know, of course, this, this, this very painful reality that the cord is going to be cut sometime. But now here's my kid telling me, I can't wait to get the hell out of this house. You know, it was like, it was so raw. It was so real. Um, You know, so I was just like, okay, what have I learned? Like, let me use this as a cushion and realize that like, this is not easy and it really hurts, but I can at least sweat it, shake it out, my own sense of shame, my own sense of guilt and proceed from there. So like, okay, how, how can there be more love in this experience? I don't want to be traumatizing my kid. How can we have more love? So it comes up all the time. I don't, you know, I I don't know how I could separate the two. Um, And maybe that's just something that comes from being immersed in it for so long. So maybe I'm not the right person to ask. (laughs) No, you are the right person. But really, you know, life is what authenticates it. Yeah. You know, it, it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a sage when I'm teaching and I'm an idiot when I'm in life. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, yes. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hold it against me. <laughs> no, I mean, this is, this is so precious, Bavani, because what you said, I mean, I'm going to quote you back to you. That you said, you know, don't try and stop the shaking. 
you know, you're in shirsasana and you're shaking. And so often I find for myself, I want to stop. I want to come down. I want to not do this. And it's like, what, what are we all encouraged to do is like, like feel it, be in it, see it and not try and, you know, stop the shaking. That's brilliant. It's cathartic, right? Yeah. I could not believe how much I was sweating today. I wasn't even doing that much, but I just had a lot to unload, you know, and it's my own heartbreak. Yeah. Heartbreak for the connection I didn't have for with my father and feeling the natural, slow, like seeding and disconnection with my son. And, and it's, you know, it's the most painful thing is that is, is letting go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yet it feels so good. Yeah. And how wonderful. I mean, that's, it's such an amazing example of that. You can't separate the teachings and the practice, you know, it's like we live our lives and we're driving a car and yeah, maybe it doesn't look like yoga. And I have a very similar experience. I'm like, okay, this person just like is coming into my lane. (laughs) It happened three times today, like coming into my lane. And it's like, what do I do? You know, how do I respond? Like I could get pissed off. I could get angry. I could yell and shout. I could like speed up or slow down. And it's like, that is the practice right there. And it's like, how do you encourage Nico? And I'll just say, you know, as I had a mom that made me go to dance and I cried and I kicked and I screamed and I thank her as an adult today for making me do it. Like, thanks for reminding me that because I'm just ready to throw in the towel. And then it's like, but once you do, there's kind of no going back. Thank you. You had told me that and I forgot. Yeah. She made me go. And I, I thank her every day now because it's informed my life in irreversible ways. So yeah. <laughs> uh, well. What encouragement would you give to someone who's in it, either grappling with the um, practice with trying to cultivate a practice at home or something that I just thought of as grappling with seeing these things as so separate, you know, wanting to be in the experience of yoga all the time and thinking that maybe doing the dishes or, you know, teaching your son piano is not yoga. And so what advice would you give to someone who's, you know, wanting to incorporate it as a life's practice? Um, a little bit of spiritual study goes a long way. A little bit. And if it for you is, um, you know, ultimately first thing in the morning is a great thing. If you can pull it off, maybe it's just five minutes. And, and centering yourself around that, it'll help you to um, reframe and recontextualize your experience. And if you're a yoga practitioner, I mean, ultimately, I feel like, I mean, the yoga sutras are so clear and, and, and pick up a beautiful translation. You know, there's a lot of them that are, they meet you at different places. And there's certain ones where I was like, oh, I don't get this at all. And then later I ended up loving that teaching, that teaching. 
Rama's translations are so gorgeous. Um, Nishala Joy Davies' translations are really beautiful because they're heart-centered. The Yogi's Roadmap is written so that you can just crack open the book. And, you know, it's not necessarily even meant to be read from cover to cover. But opening something up, reading a little bit of Yogananda's teachings or something, <clears throat> somebody who's, you know, if you're a yoga practitioner, stay within that stream, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, you know, if you're new to yoga, I would say do that. And it's so helpful. And you'll, it'll, it'll give you inspiration and it'll help you to contextualize. But definitely it's like practice, you know, um, Patabi Joyce, he used to say yoga is 99% practice and 1% theory. But without the theory, he said, it's not a yoga practice. So that 1%, that's a really interesting thing also is like, what if it's 1% of your day? Maybe somebody can matriculate that. What 1%, maybe it's five minutes. I don't know. That body of awareness and what it's doing is it's tapping into your wisdom. Like if I didn't have the sutras right now, I would feel so shitty about myself that, you know, I got mad or I got frustrated or I did this and, you know, and, and like, basically I would be using the, the yoga as a form of like bludgeoning and flagellating myself. So like understanding the, the humanity, the, the context of our humanity and what these teachings are doing is they're speaking to our heart, which gets buried um, you know, this deep knowing it gets buried through all of the like disturbances and frictions and frustrations of life, which are the, the pressure cooker of evolution. I mean, that was just yesterday. Sutra was like, wow, you know, life is frustrating. You're never going to, you're, it's always there's so now like my new mantra is like, I wonder what's going to frustrate me today. Like you're looking out for it, you know, and you have, there's kind of like a sense of, of um, lightness within it and compassion for yourself. So that, that just that little bit, think about the sutras, they're short, right? I mean, if we were native Sanskrit um, speakers, that would be enough. But with the study, all you have to do, all I got to say is Shanae, Shraddha And you're like, thank you, you know? It says so much, it, it, it taps in. And so that little bit, it grows within us and it's accessing what's in us, in us as well. And it really, I mean, talk about coming full circle. It's what feeds my shraddha, my commitment and my devotion. Like love is not easy. It's not always going to be easy. And it's also that sense where you don't insist that you always have to feel good or have it together. Like I suck at a lot of things, but I'm getting better, you know? So it's like not about the perfection, but I'm progress because I'm taking myself on 
And, you know, with the concept context of my child, it's like, I really care about him. And I, it's, it's like, I'm not doing it for myself, but I care about him. And I know that I'm going to give him like, you know, certain neuroses of mine are going to be passed on. It's inevitable, but how can I help him the most without enabling him? So I feel like, you know, hopefully everybody, you know, with the, with the inertia thing, it's like, find something that really matters to you, something that's meaningful to you. And it can be anything, but find what that is and start to invest yourself in it. And you're going to see that it's kind of like the book, writing the book is so intense. And in the beginning, you know, you have to like, all right, I'm going to sit and I'm going to write for an hour each day. And then as you put like energy into it, you realize that like, this is a body of work. This is a teaching that is calling on you and you can't wait to get together. It's like being with a good friend and like, oh my God, let's hang out. I've only got two hours or I've only got 45 minutes, but let's do this. And, and it just starts pulling stuff out, out of you. So yeah, the inertia part is always, is always the hardest part. And it might even just be, you know, a cup of hot water and lemon. Maybe that's too complicated. Maybe that's too much. Just crack a book, a good book, and read a few sentences. Yeah. <laughs> Jai Ma. Thank you so much. This is just so wonderful to sit with you in conversation. And I look forward to the next time we get to do this. Me too. So much love to you, Shanae. Aloha. Thank you for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to take these teachings on for yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. For more information about Bhavani Maki and her online and in-person teachings, including the Yoga Sutra Wisdom School, online Patanjali Yoga Sutra mentorship, and her continuing classes and trainings, please visit www.bhavanimaki.com. That's B-H-A-V-A-N-I-M-A-K-I. You will find many resources, including sound bites of the Patanjali Yoga Sutra Samadhi Pada and Sadhana Pada for free, as well as a free yoga class. Thank you again. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations from the heart. Please join us as we continue to walk this revelatory path into deep personal inquiry through yoga as a path toward our unique, true spiritual awakening. Jalaruha mitra, jashatru netram, kalushatru